0: Welcome, investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. I would think, for the most part, the courts at the lower level, the state level, even the initial whether it's on the state or the federal level, that initial court process is going to be fairly accurate. And especially nowadays, so I I don't know if you know what I do, but other than this podcast, I work with what's called MVAC systems, which is a a DNA collection system. So I, I work on the evidence side. And once I teach a CSI or a forensics analyst how to collect the DNA using our system, then that evidence is moving forward and that's all part of the package that the mm-hmm. prosecution will use to try a case against a certain client. So in today's world, especially when evidence is so important in a lot of, cause I, I know a lot mm-hmm. of prosecutors won't even move forward if they don't have a DNA profile or at least a really strong fingerprint sure. or something like that. It's like the physical evidence that is usually part of the prosecution uh, mm-hmm. A lot of times, that's it's pretty difficult to to overturn based on that because it's not like somebody's opinion or somebody's testimony that can be cross-examined and reviewed as, you know, well, this guy had a beef with the client and therefore was falsely accusing him or something like that. It's like physical evidence is a lot harder to, to get overturned, I would think.
1: I um, mean, yeah, so okay, be- so... No, I think, I mean, that is mostly correct. And there are certain kinds of evidence that are particularly difficult to get around. DNA happens to be a fairly reliable kind of evidence. But this just opens up like a whole can of worms. Because, I mean, there, there really are some forensic evidence that was believed to have been accurate, but which wasn't. And so I'm thinking now about kind of like the bite mark analysis that was, right. you know, convicting people down in Mississippi. And then we just know that that was a bunch of junk. And so people are getting kind of exonerated based on that. Physical evidence can be good evidence, so long as it's done properly and so long as it's reliable. So there's still these things that you've got to kind of take into consideration when you're looking at those cases. But yeah, and I mean, another kind of interesting thing about sort of forensic evidence, right? I mean, it, it takes a long time for the court's to really recognize when there are problems with forensic Mm. analysis. And I'm thinking again about the bite mark evidence. The science community knew that there was a problem with that, but the courts were still allowing it and were still upholding convictions based on it. It's a very interesting issue. I mean, I think I think That's science, a
0: ago, didn't it? You know, especially like bite marks. I'm trying to think of hair analysis, I think. Hair is, analysis. Is now. was um, another one. A lot of fibers.
1: Well, and, are, and GSR yeah. is something that is it kind of goes back and forth. I mean, some agencies will still use it. Others won't, you know, it's like, what, what does that mean? Yeah. The way it's used when somebody tries to prove that somebody didn't shoot a gun because there's an absence of GSR. I mean, there's just different ways it's used in a courtroom. It's just not always reliable. And, you know, the standards, the standards by which people are allowed to testify, like in South Carolina, for example, all that a court has to show or all, all that a prosecution has to show is that it would assist the trier of fact. So we don't even have what would be like sort of the Dalbert standard, mm-hmm. which, you know, some jurisdictions Require, including like the federal courts. So, I mean, that, it's hard to have kind of a function, you know, kind of a truth function way of kind of keeping the bad evidence out. I remember one case I had, I handled this case on appeal, but I mean, he was a crime scene investigator who had spent a little time with the FBI and he just kind of walked into the courtroom like he was some kind of behavioral expert. And he was look at some of this evidence in the case. He looked at pictures of the crime scene. He didn't actually go to the crime scene. He looked at pictures of the crime scene and concluded that there must have been at least two people. We challenged that on the on the direct appeal. And we actually kind of won it in our first court, in the Court of Appeals, but then we lost it up in South Carolina Supreme Court. But, you know, it was just an example of this forensic guy kind of coming in and just testifying to something. It was just craziness. It was just craziness. Like it's trying to divine. I mean, it was like being a fortune teller. So anyway,
0: yeah. <laughs> probably uh,
1: going I, I, off on I, like that. I mean.
0: No, I've met some of those types that they, they develop an expertise in one area and then that automatically allows them to extrapolate into other areas. And that's, that's a dangerous place to be. And especially because entire cases can get overthrown from that one direction or another, but it's it's interesting. It's one thing f- for me to come onto a podcast and bloviate about certain things that I have experienced and seen. And I can talk about things, even the court process on a surface level, but if I was to actually sit down in a court of law and hold my hand up, then be under oath and try to expound on a lot of those things, there's no way I would do that. And so, I, I I don't know, the the level of arrogance that you're describing, I'm not sure a lot of people understand exactly. Yeah, well,
1: uh, and it's rare. I mean, I will say this. I mean, you know, I've, yeah. I've read I don't know how many trials, and I've known I don't know how many experts. And we've got some ballistics guys who are just, I mean, straight as a narrow. I mean, they won't say yeah. anything. that's just sort of a millimeter outside of their lane. But then well, every now and then you get some... Every now and then you'll get somebody who comes in. They're like, well, let me just sort of, you know, tell you all this stuff. And it's hard oh, to man. shut that person down.
0: Maybe that's you why know? I'm laughing about it is because it is it is so rare. But it's one of those where you're just like, holy cow, really? Like making assumptions and a testimony based on pictures is crazy.
1: Well, I think so too. And I'll say this. I find that sort of the closer to the hard sciences that expert is, the more they seem to understand their role. (laughs) So when you've got the DNA guys, when you've got kind of the tool mark, ballistics guys, I mean, there's really something kind of the foundation of that science. But when you get to like the behavioral guys, the behavioral experts, you know, the ones who are just like, well, you know, I just had this sense that this person, that there are two people in this picture, that is just kind of craziness, and I just don't even know why that's allowed. But it is because, I mean, again, the court just has to say, well, you know, we think this is going to assist the, the trier of fact. I mean, if I had been the trial counsel, I think I would have said, or it's greatly going to confuse them. Where's the reliability of this? But, you know, the court didn't have to make a reliability determination.
0: Well, so in, in the, so if we take that example, somebody who is testifying – outside of their lane what can a defense lawyer do to shut that down
1: i mean that that's what's difficult right you have to sort of jump up and object 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 but the court overrules your objection i mean it comes in
0: Mm. (laughs) while we're talking about evidence other than dna what kind of evidence is just really difficult to overturn i shouldn't say other than dna i mean it's like all you know if we if we look at Uh, all the evidence all the different types Mm -hmm. of evidence, especially the physical evidence. Is there some where you just look at it and you're like, oh, that's rock solid. There's no way I'm going to get around that.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, like when we get a toxicology report, that's probably going to be pretty accurate. I'm sort of thinking of the ones that I think are, there's probably be more challenges too. I mean, I, I find that time of death investigations can often be kind of murky. I think it's difficult to really get, good signs on that unless for a body that's a little bit older than maybe 12 hours you mm-hmm. know i mean i think you've got sort of your rigor and things like that that you can kind of do some of those initial time frames you can kind of analyze that well,
0: there's so many different factors that go into that including the temperature wow. that's outside and where the body is and all those kind of things
1: right yeah, I but be- i mean i've seen i've seen time of death investigations that i thought were just really weird and sloppy Like, I mean, this is another case, so I'm not gonna (laughs) talk about the names, but it was a case where the issue was, is it a suicide or was it murder? And the prosecution was sort of wedded to this idea that a murder happened and that the defendant waited some period of time before he called 911. So they were kind of committed to this idea that there was this time span, right? Significant time span between the death and then the time that they called 911 officers come out pretty immediately. And so they had like four different witnesses who all testified on direct examination, questioning by the prosecutor. So was the blood coagulated? And they're like, yes, the blood was definitely coagulated, as though that were something meaningful, as if the coagulation of the blood and somehow sort of established a time of death. And I mean, again, it was the sort of thing where trial counsel object and all the rest of it. And the court said, you know, this is what they said they saw. So, I mean, it's percipient testimony. We're just going to let it come in. But it was the way the prosecution was using that as though there was something scientifically relevant about that. I mean, and what was interesting is in the appeal, I had to kind of go to just various treatises and public sources just to show that coagulation of blood happens within Moments. But that was again, it was just kind of a, and I, and I couldn't quite understand like why they were sort of wedded to this idea that it had to have been like some period of time between like the murder and when he called. I mean, you could still call it a murder even if it happened and he immediately called 911. So I couldn't understand why they forced themselves into that kind of weird time frame, but they did. And then when they had their, and this was sort of the tell, they had a forensic pathologist testify. I didn't ask her a single question about time of death when she was the only person who was actually qualified to testify to that.
0: Interesting. Well, yeah, you know the the detectives and the people on the investigative side they're going to answer the questions, but I guess it's the prosecutor's responsibility to paint the big picture. And I, I don't know. I think that just comes with experience, perhaps that maybe somebody that's less experienced would try to formulate, you know, paint the picture with the wrong paintbrush, but that's, (laughs) that's their call. Right.
1: (laughs) Right. Right.
0: Okay. So some of the other questions that I had, just as, as I was doing research on you, I I just find that that's just the appeals process to me is one of those where, yes, I a hundred percent agree that every single client deserves an appeal. So how is it that you would select which clients you would take on, especially being a boutique. And you said you have limited numbers of clients that you take Mm -hmm. on at a time. So what's the process that you go through in order to select those clients?
1: You know, so when somebody reaches out to us, the first thing we want to do is kind of talk to them, you know, the first thing I want to know is like, whether or not I actually sort of like this person, this is somebody I feel like I can have a relationship with because the appellate process can last a few years. And so you just want somebody who you feel like you can actually kind of communicate with and and enjoy. And then, you know, I I just like the cases where I think we can help. I feel like if it's something that we can really just sort of help somebody out, if we think that maybe there's a problem with sufficiency of the evidence, if we think that just something sort of strange about the case. I mean, like we've got a case, kind of a recent case where, you know, it's a murder trial and there's the victims' families and the defendants' families. And this was during the time of COVID. And so they had to kind of reduce the number of people who were in the courtroom. And they took all the defendants' family and removed them, <laughs> put them in another room and let them watch the trial by video camera while the victim's family got to stay there. You know, that was like kind of an interesting issue. And we're like, oh, yeah, let's see what we can do with this. So, I mean, I, I like issues that are interesting. But really, if there's somebody that we feel like we can help, someone whose story needs to be told, somebody whose case needs to be kind of reframed so that this person has the opportunity to have another trial, because that's kind of what happens, right? I mean, and this maybe is a misconception a lot of people have. I mean, if you win an appeal, most likely you're going to get another trial most people who win their appeals, unless you're winning on sufficiency of the evidence or some kind of very significant misconduct kind of claim, most cases are going to result in a new trial and not just an outright dismissal. So, but that's that's what we do. Whatever we can do to kind of help and we like the client, we'll take that case.
0: Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.